we go through the text, page 234 in a blue Bible in front of you, 1 Samuel chapter 13. Let's stand together as we read these 10 verses, beginning with verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead, and Saul was still at Gilgal. And all the people followed him, trembling. And Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, then you didn't come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not command what you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So you may be seated and let's take a moment to reflect on this God's word. Every month or six weeks, it just works out that um, I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to be prayed for by, by me or one of the elders, and so I'm going to invite you to come forward after the service is over if that's what you need this morning. It may be something related to this sermon or song, or it may be something that's just heavy on your heart that you would like somebody to pray for you with, and we would love to be a part of that for you this morning. So that'll be available, and I'll remind you at the end of the service as well. I have a friend who was part of putting together uh, a counter-terrorism team for the FBI. He did this back in the 80s when there really wasn't something in place. And so he was a part of creating this elite special forces team for counter-terrorism activity that would happen inside of the United States. And so he, he was sort of like putting together a, a, a team like the Navy SEALs. And as you might imagine, if you were going to be an individual that was going to join this team, you had to pass some pretty rigorous tests. And as I recall, it's been some no number of years now, but as I recall one of the tests that he talked to me about was they would take the individual... And there'd be three or four guys in this car, and they would take this one person, blindfold them, drive them out into the middle of the woods, 
might be in the middle of the night, drop them off, leave them with a, a map, a compass, and a point on the map, and then give them a certain amount of time to arrive at that point. So they drive away, you take your blindfold off, you'd have a compass and a map, and you'd have a certain amount of time. You've got to reach this point in 30 minutes or two hours, whatever it was. And then as you approached, if you, if you were smart enough to find your way, which they really assumed you were, you approached the point that you were supposed to find. The men who had dropped you off had a little card table, and they had some food and some water, and they'd see you at some distance sort of coming through the woods into the clearing, and they would be like, way to go, you found it, awesome. And as you sort of got a little bit closer, but not too close, they folded up the table, got in the car, and drove away. And the only thing they left behind was another point for you to find on the map. And this happened over and over and over again. And I don't remember the number he said, but let's just say it was seven. That there was some number they calculated that at this point, this is the point where most, most people gave up. They, they came one more time, the seventh time, and they just said, I can't, I can't start out on the hike anymore. It's just too difficult physically. It's too difficult sort of emotionally. And they would just sit down by the tree or the rock or whatever the point was, and they would give up. And what they didn't realize was that the seventh point was the last point. And if they had just gotten up and taken 10 steps towards the eighth point, the truck would have come back and said the test is over. But if you sat down at the seventh point and didn't get back up, then you failed the test. And so when I was talking to my friend about this and I was just asking the, the point of the test was that they, they assumed that the people that they dropped out in the middle of the woods with a compass and a map point could actually find the place on the map. The real test was that under pressure, under difficult circumstances, under stress, could they persevere? Because we're going to have these people in this elite squad, and they're always, when they're on duty, they're always going to be under a stressful situation. They're always going to be under pressure. And we didn't need to know if the people that we put on the squad under these kinds of conditions, can they persevere? Can they take simple directions and keep moving forward? Or do they have some sort of breaking point? In 1 Samuel chapter 13... Saul, who has recently been anointed the king, is under a very stressful circumstance. He's under a great deal of pressure. And what I want to do this morning is walk alongside of Saul under this pressure point, find out what the real test is, see how he responds to it, and then what we can learn. So let me give you a little background first, especially if you haven't been a part of the series. In chapter 10, Samuel, who is the last judge, he's a prophet, he's handed over the, the political reins to the very first king of Israel, and his name is Saul. And he does this in several different stages, but chapter 10 is the first of these stages, and it's basically sort of a one-on-one -on -one conversation between Samuel and Saul. Samuel is helping Saul know, hey, this, there's going to be a ceremony in a, in a little bit, but I'm handing this over to you right now. 
And he gives them some signs that Saul finds out about. And then he finally tells them that, hey, Saul, one day you're going to be under great pressure. And it's going to be sometime in the future. He doesn't tell them exactly when. But you're going to go down to Gilgal. You remember Gilgal? Gilgal is this important city in 1 Samuel. It's an important city in the Bible. But it's the place where Joshua set up the 12 stones when they came across the River Jordan. And it's sort of like a, a marker that you go back to if you're Israel. And you go back to this special place and you say, this, we know God is powerful. We know God is faithful. So we always come back to this location. And so he goes down to Gilgal and Samuel gives him these instructions. I want you to wait seven days. So whether I'm there or not, you're going to be a Gilgal. You've got to wait seven days and I'm going to come. And then I'm going to make a sacrifice. And then I'm going to hear from the Lord. And then I'm going to give you instructions on how you should move forward. This is sort of the, the setup for Israel now. Saul or David or Solomon or whoever it is, the king, but the king doesn't have ultimate power. He has to rely on God's word that comes through a prophet. So the prophet's going to come and beseech God and then say, okay, Samuel, you should fight. You shouldn't fight. You should do this. You shouldn't do that. Whatever that is. And then, and then Saul, you're supposed to go out and you're supposed to accomplish that. So it's really not that complicated, There's going to be a stressful situation. You're going to find yourself at Gilgal. Wait seven days. I'll come. I'll give you instructions. I mean, that's not super complicated. You don't need a college education to figure that one out. Unless it's a stressful situation. And you know this. Simple instructions aren't simple under stress. And so we find out what happens here with Saul. Fast forward to chapter 13. It's at least a couple of years later. And if we were to read the opening four four verses, you would find out that a small band of Philistines, you can't think of the Philistines correctly, they're the bad guys, they're the stormtroopers. They've moved into Israel, God's promised land. They set up a little camp. It's just a a little troop. It's not a whole army. But they're sort of establishing this little beachhead that they might then attack Israel from. And Jonathan, who is Saul's oldest son and a man at this point, he decides to take it upon himself to say, hey, this little troop, it shouldn't be inside of Israel. And so I'm going to get some men and I'm going to run them off. And probably Saul should have done this, but he didn't. And so Jonathan does it. And when Jonathan does it, it's like poking a hornet's nest. I mean, it's not that hard to get rid of this little troop, but guess what happens? This little troop gets back to Philistine, and they said, hey, we're going to bring the whole force of our army in. And the, the Philistines were more advanced technologically than the farmers of Israel. They had metal and weapons and chariots, and all the people in Israel basically farmers. So they poke this hornet's nest. The people go back, and they said, well, we're going to send our whole army. And you see it in verse 5. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, troops like the sand on the seashore. Now, if, I'm sorry if you haven't seen a Lord of the Rings movie for many reasons, but if you haven't seen one, you need to go see one. But if you've seen one, you, this, ha- this scene happens in every movie several times. The, the good guys are somewhere, and then what comes over the horizon? The orcs, Right? 
These big, mean, ugly, monster people. And it's always a sea of them. It's never like three people. It's, it's just one, like an army. You can't even get past the end of it. And you, you're sitting in the movie saying, there's no way the good guys can beat all these evil guys coming over the horizon. That's the setting here. That, that we've poked this hornet's nest and thousands of troops have come over the, hill, the hills and the people then get very afraid. You see that in verse uh, 6 and 7. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, they were hard-pressed. What did they do? They hid themselves in caves. Some of them went down in holes, in rocks, in tombs. I mean, I've got to be afraid if I'm going to get in a tomb or a cistern, this uh, like old well that you would lower yourself down into. These people are terrified of what's happening to them. And Saul, he's at Gilgal. Now, here's the test. He, he, he remembers what Samuel said. Saul, there's going to be a day you're going to have a test. It's going to be great pressure, and I've given you some very simple instructions. They're not complex, so I want you to make sure you understand what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to wait on me. I'm going to come. I'm going to give the sacrifice. We're going to hear from the Lord, and then we'll have, we'll have a game plan. Verse 8, Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. So the picture we're supposed to have in our mind here. Israel is the promised land. It's the new garden. Saul is the new king. He's the new Adam of the garden. And when an enemy slithers in, he's supposed to take care of it. It's day seven, and Saul, Saul wakes up, and guess what? Samuel hasn't arrived. And the pressure, the pressure is coming on. Uh, he can hear the, the banging of the metal instruments, the sharpening of the swords just around the valley corner and the, where the, the, the Philistines are. He, he can hear these weapons of war being banged out. Saul, Saul's army, very tiny group of men, only 600. Imagine 600 against 30,000 chariots. They begin to scatter. And the question for every reader here is, what is Saul going to do? Will Saul trust in God's word, or will he take matters into his own hands? Under the stressful circumstances, under this test, is Saul going to persevere and follow simple instructions? Or is he going to panic and follow his own heart? That's the test. That's the real test for Saul at Gilgal. See, the real test for Saul at Gilgal isn't his fight against the Philistines, the real, Saul, real test for Saul at Gilgal is his fight for faith in God. The real test isn't the enemy out here. It's, it's the enemy in here for Saul. Under pressure, would Saul trust God or would Saul trust Saul? What a test. But you're familiar with this test, are you not? I mean, everybody here should be very familiar with this test. You can be a sixth grader. You can be a college student. You can be a 32-year-old female. You can be a 50-year-old business owner. 
you can be a widow. I mean, no matter where you are, you feel this test. There's some very simple instructions to follow. And really, the question is, not, not the enemy outside, not the pressure that's coming from outside, but the pressure in your own heart. Under these circumstances, am I really going to trust God, or am I going to say, God, I, you're not showing up like I thought you would. I've got to take matters into my own hands. I've got to take control. And we find out, sad, sadly, how Saul responds Verse 8, he waited seven days, the appointed time by Samuel, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering. And so Saul said, bring me the offering. And he offered the burnt offering. And wouldn't you know, verse 10, as soon as he's just halfway through these, these two offerings, Samuel shows up. Feels like a little bit like the special forces story, doesn't it? If you just waited a little bit longer, if I'd gotten to the seventh point and just, if I'd just taken a few steps towards the eighth point, then everything would have been different. I would have passed the test. And here, Saul, if he could have just waited all the way through the seventh day, not just until the seventh day, but if he could have just waited a little bit longer, who knows how things might have turned out. And I wonder if you have any of these moments in your own personal journal. You flip back through the pages and you say, oh, if I just waited, if I, if I had just been obedient at that moment and not taken matters into my own hand, then who knows how things might have turned out. Well, Saul gets greeted by Samuel by what have you done? What a terrible verse, verse 11. What have you done? This heartbroken prophet who's handed off the power to Saul, he looks at him and says, here, this is your very first test. The, 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 the instructions couldn't have been more simple. And here you've, you've exposed your heart. You're taking things into your own hands. And you'll be familiar with Saul's response. Well, I saw the people scattering. So who's at fault? Well, the people are. And I saw, Samuel, that you didn't come. So guess who else is at fault? Yes, Samuel's at fault. And the Philistines were about ready to attack. So who else is at fault? The Philistines. So here we've got this situation that the people are at fault. Samuel's at fault. The Philistines are at fault. Guess who's not at fault? The one person who's at fault. You familiar with this? It sound familiar to you? I've, I've put myself in this situation, but in order to somehow weasel out of it, I'm making sure everybody else really is to blame for my bad choice. We have this twisted rationalization. I'm familiar with it because it goes through my mind so often. Maybe you are too. You know what God's word says, but you say something like this, well, this is a stressful situation. And God doesn't seem to be coming through. So I have to take matters in my own hand. If I follow God's word right now, that's going to mean pain for me. So I better take matters in my own hand. 
It's only one small compromise. Plus, I have good intentions. Does that sound familiar? I was listening to a, a song on Spotify. And if you don't know what the next song is, they just choose one for you. The very first line of this song, I don't care how wrong it is, I've got good intentions. And I thought, wow. How often has that message zipped through my mind? You know, I know it's wrong, but you can't fault me because I've got good intentions. Paul, you had good intentions. Whoa, good intentions. Oh, great. All right, you're off the hook. Maybe this thought, I'm the leader. Maybe Saul had this thought, I'm the leader. Nobody understands the pressure I'm under. And my unique position and my unique pressure gets me out of having to follow God's word. See, there's hundreds of ways we rationalize this in our mind. But we rationalize our responsibility to be obedient. Now, this whole episode should be reminding you of another episode. Where's the first chord in this story? What's the answer? Genesis 3. That's the answer to all my questions like this. Genesis 3. Genesis 3. Adam and Eve's failure in the garden. The real test is not the apple on the tree. The real test is whether they would be obedient under pressure. And when they failed, guess what they did? They blamed everybody else. This is the same chord that happens in the Bible. It happens in my own heart. And sadly for Saul, just like Adam and Eve, the terrible consequences didn't just fall on Saul. They fell on his family. Saul, you've done wrong, you get the punishment. No, Saul, you've done wrong, you get the punishment, and your family, just like Adam and Eve. Verses 13 and 14. And Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord, which he commanded you. Or the Lord would have established your kingdom forever. Imagine how heart-wrenching that was for Saul at that point. If you, Saul, if you had just taken a few more steps of patience, your kingdom could have been established forever. But now, your kingdom won't continue. You're going to be cut off in some way. And somebody else, somebody outside of your line is going to be the new king. Now, you and I lived in such a hyper-individualized culture, it's hard for us to appreciate the impact of our obedience or our disobedience. You and I just think, well, it's, if I'm obedient, it's good for me. If I'm disobedient, it's bad for me. But that's not how the Bible story works, and that's not actually how your story works. Your obedience in a small thing, your disobedience in a small thing, impacts your children and your children's children. For Jonathan, who's really one of the favorite characters in the book of 1 Samuel that we'll get to next week, he doesn't get to be king. He's really the one who should be king the whole time. And now he gets cut off because of his father's sin. Now, thankfully, this isn't where the story ends. This would be a tough story if it just ended there. But God's story doesn't end with our failure. Again, just like Adam and Eve's story doesn't just end with their failure, that there's a a little light on the horizon. 
in the midst of this dark moment of disobedience, there's a, a little ray of light that comes up against this black horizon. And for Eve and the whole world, she's promised that some other person, some other woman would come and she would bear a seed. And that seed, that man, would put to death the snake that's come into the garden once and for all. And who is that? That's Mary and Jesus. She gets a promise in Genesis 3.15 that we see happen in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And Samuel says the same thing to Saul. There's a, there's a promise. The whole world is promised that God would find a man after God's own heart. Yahweh would find this king and it'll be the kind of king that no matter the pain, no matter the pressure, he's going to be faithful. He's going to persevere. No matter the difficult road he must travel, he's going to get up and go to the next point. Now, it gets partially fulfilled in, the king, in king David. But if you know the story of King David, he's not perfect either. He gets under pressure. And he does things that are apart from God's will. So it's partially fulfilled in David, but it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew 26, 38, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his crucifixion. Talk about pressure. He's sweating drops of blood. And here's the real test for Jesus. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And here's his prayer. If it's possible, Lord, what's in my heart right now is that you would take this cup from me. I see the next point on the map. I don't want to go to that point. And if it's possible, I'd just like to sit down right now. I'd like not to go to that point. And does he pass the real test? Yes. What does he say? But not my will be done. Yours. If you need me to go to the next point, I'm going to go to the next point. And here's the great news about this. Is that Jesus didn't come just to be an example. In other words, I'm not going to end the sermon here and say, be like Jesus. What would you say? I can't. I can't be like Jesus. That's why I'm here. Jesus does something, and if he's your father, his obedience is your obedience. Just like Adam's disobedience is your disobedience, his obedience is mine. That's the good news. Amen? Jesus came to live a perfect life and give it to you. So you don't have to earn it. You just have to receive it. And so I'm wondering if you're here today, if you've really received Christ's obedience. Or are you still trying to earn it somehow? And if you're a Christian here this morning, you've said, yes, I, I can't do this on my own. I need a, a, an outside obedience. I need somebody, else obedient, somebody else's obedience to be mine. 
I'm wondering if you've really appreciated the depths that God has gone to for you. Most of us are familiar with John Newton, the the hymn writer of the great hymn, Amazing Grace. And what makes the song so amazing was that he was a slave trader. And he actually kept a log of one of his trips of how much cargo, they used to say, which is terrible to even say it that way, how much cargo gets lost in transport. In one of his logs, 218 people started out, 62 thrown overboard during transport. And his estimate on his travels was about 25% of the Africans he was transporting from Africa to England got thrown overboard as he was the captain. And those who didn't get thrown overboard, he brought them into slavery. How does somebody like that have hope? Because his obedience doesn't get him to heaven. Jesus' obedience gets him into heaven. And John wrote about it in a song that we have sometimes sung called Great God of Thee. And he says this, Thus though a sinner I am safe, Jesus pleads before the throne, his life and death in my behalf, and calls my sin his own. What wondrous love, what mysteries, my breaches of the law are his, and his obedience is mine. What a great line. That's somebody who really understood the gospel. His obedience is mine. So if his obedience is yours, what's our charge today as believers? Not to earn our salvation, but to express our love for God by our obedience. Does that make sense? i got to make sure you got that clear. Because I'm going to want you to be, and I think I'm, and I'm wanting to be, more obedient. But I don't want you to go out to say, so I can earn God's salvation. I want you to go out because I'm expressing God's salvation. That's the difference between the gospel and religion. And so let me just ask you, as I've asked myself this week, how are you doing on obedience? You're under pressure somewhere. Some of you are under great pressure. And are you waiting? Are you taking matters in your own hand? Do you have any of those rationalizations that, well, just because of this, then I guess I don't have to? Any of that happening in your life? Any place that you need somebody just to hang on for you because you can't seem to hang on? That's then I would ask you to come up and we'll pray for you on that way. The Lord sent you here, me here today for this passage. It might just be to say, I need somebody else's obedience. My disobedience is so terrible. I need to receive God's grace. Or I have received it, but I don't express it. I, I, I make thousands of excuses of why I can't wait on God, and I, I've really taken control of my own life. I need help again. Would you remind me of that? May this be the day for that. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come here this morning... We're thankful for your kindness and grace and mercy to us. And if we're here without you, pray that we would open our hearts to your obedience. But most of us here, especially this morning, are 
in the camp of people who are trying to say, we, we, we're opening ourselves to you, heart, mind, and soul, but there's still a lot to be worked out. A lot of places of disobedience in our life, and we pray that you would work that out in our heart, and our soul, our mind this morning. In Jesus' name.